Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Imagine there's a place in our world where the known things go. A quarter of the mind. Unfortunately, it's a mess in here. Half the time I can't find what I came for. Dewey Decimals, something. This place could do with some kind of an organizational scheme. Also, geez, it's so noisy in here. What with this crystal radio set and the old record player running? What would the preacher preach about, man? I don't know why that didn't go. This place, this chamber of knowledge, it stores the facts that matter and matters of fact. The sounds that matter. The sign on the door reads, The Last Archive. Step through the door and into an apartment in Harlem where the writer, Ralph Ellison, is packing a suitcase while listening to the radio. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. My side. Keep listening for Cliff Edwards' ukulele-ite. The White House has announced that we are still at war with Japan. Smoke and dust clouds still roll up from what once was one of Japan's greatest cities. August 10th, 1945. The United States has just dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In New York, Ralph Ellison was packing his bags. He'd been in the Merchant Marines during the war, but sick in uh, seven different ways, he was put on leave to get some rest. He had other plans for the time off, though. He meant to write a great American novel. I know that Ellison left New York that day. I don't know for sure that he listened to the radio while he was folding his shirts and balling his socks. Historians talk a lot about the historical imagination. You can't make things up, but you do have to try to picture things. You have to try to put yourself in the place of your subject, in the mind of your subject, as best you can. If I'm interested in a person and a person's story, 
I want to know that person's whole story. The evidence of anyone's story that was patchy. That's where your imagination comes in. So I don't know that Ellison was listening to the radio that August day. But I like to think he was. And I have a pretty good reason to think he was. Ellison listened. He was super interested in sound. What you can know by hearing. By listening. Welcome to The Last Archive, the show about how we know what we know, how we used to know things, and why sometimes lately it feels as though we don't know anything at all. I'm Jill Lepore. This season, I've been asking, who killed truth? One way truth dies is when the kinds of things taken as evidence shrink. A lot of people tend not to think about novels or poetry or any kind of literature as evidence, but I think they should. This episode is about a novel. The novel Ellison was packing his bags to go off and write, and it's about how he came to write it and why. Ellison decided he needed some quiet to write, and for that, he needed to get out of the city. He had some friends who owned a farm in Vermont. So later that day, he headed north to the little town of Waitsfield, where a friend of his, Emily Bates, had a farm. Every summer, she took her kids there. She found a farm that had no electricity, no running water. We lived very naturally. The rainwater, <laughs> the, the rainwater <laughs> would come, come down and fill a barrel. We'd use that for washing dishes. That's Amelie's daughter, Diana Bates. She's a great-grandmother now, but back in 1945, she was seven years old. It was a front room that was probably the dining room in this farmhouse. And there was, that's where our little tables were, but that became where he was going to work. Ellison got to Vermont and settled into Wright. A friend shipped him four pounds of Maxwell House coffee. He was ready. But then he found out a bitter truth. The country isn't as quiet as city people think. Diana's little sister Grace reminded me about that. It would have been noisier then because there was more bug life. And so you have the humming and the buzzing and the birds the tweeting. And at that time, there were no cars on the road. It was a dirt road. So you. The mailman. Just mm-hmm. once a day. And there's a certain time in the heat of the afternoon when the crow lets off. It's like a transport. It just transports you into another place. What does the crow sound like? Oh, I don't, I'm not going to do that. I do it at home, though, because they're, they, they've That's taken... Fine. They do it, do it, do it. It's fine. It's a distinctive thing. This, this, right? this, 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 ah, ah, oh, ah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Perfect. That's exactly it. Yeah. But the crows weren't really the problem. The kids were the problem. Their mother told the girls to hush, but they just couldn't. Diana was irrepressible. She still is. I have to say <laughs> that I wasn't very happy about it because we had to be quiet. Oh. Yeah, yeah. so um, That's a I do remember throwing, I always think of oranges, but I think it was probably something else at the door <laughs> where he was writing. <laughs> I don't know why I think it was oranges in my head now, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't because you were in Vermont and this was early time, you know, that there wasn't any orange trees around. So it might have been apples or it might have been stones, for all I know. It was, but I flung up at the door and I ran. Ellison, exasperated, moved to the barn. He put some distance between himself and the Bates girls, the width of the road. In the quiet, he began to write. 
his imagination began to soar, fly like a bird to the clouds. And then, right then, right there, he heard another noise, a voice in his head. The voice of a black man from the South. It'd say things. It's sometimes advantageous to be unseen. He tried to ignore it, but he couldn't. He couldn't shake it. So he threw away the book he'd been writing, and he started writing a different one, in the voice of this man, an American man, a black man. Grace Bates read me its opening lines. I am an invisible man. No, I am not a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe. Nor am I one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms. I am a man of substance, of flesh and bone, fiber and liquids. And I might even be said to possess a mind. I am invisible, understand simply because people refuse to see me. Like the bodiless heads you see sometimes in circus sideshows, it is as though I have been surrounded by mirrors of hard, distorting glass. When they approach me, they see only my surroundings, themselves or figments of their imagination. Indeed, everything and anything except me. That is so beautiful. That is so incredibly beautiful. The opening lines of one of the most famous novels of the 20th century, Invisible Man, a story about what it means to be unseen and unheard Out of Ellison's imagination came proof. Ellison had a theory of history. He once explained it to his good friend, the writer Robert Penn Warren, who was working on an oral history project called Who Speaks for the Negro? Ellison called Warren Red. What's all you buy? What do you want to talk about? Oh. I don't know, Red. It's it's, the... The irony of American history is such that we're always trying to discover ourselves. People create themselves in this country. The Negro has been creating himself. This is, this is very hard for some people to grasp. In writing a novel, Ellison set out to discover American history, to create American history. It took him seven years, all told, to finish the book he began up in that barn in Vermont. Invisible Man is a work of extraordinary literary imagination, but it's also a work of historical imagination. And it's also a piece of history. It rests on evidence, and it is evidence. Invisible Man tells the story of a man who leaves the Jim Crow South and heads north. It's often taken as an allegory for the entire African-American experience, for the entire American experience. But it also comes out of Ellison's own life. Ralph Waldo Ellison was born in Oklahoma in 1913. Later, when he got to be famous, he talked about his early life a lot, often to white interviewers like Red Warren and even to Studs Terkel, the celebrated oral historian. Where did your, uh, whatever it was, that urge come from to to be the right? Well, uh, I always loved to read. And my father was a great reader, although he died... uh, uh, when I was three, the, I, uh, as a young kid, uh, dreamed a lot, uh, loved to be told stories, and found a way of, of extending 
my environment through reading. And um, my mother was always bringing home books and magazines as she brought home uh, classical phonograph recordings from places where she worked. Ellison only knew his father through his words, a book of poems he left behind, the letters the family kept, a voice from beyond the grave. Ellison grew up working odd jobs to make ends meet, making ice cream sodas at a pharmacy, delivering newspapers. On the way to one of his jobs, at a dentist's, he'd pass a Ku Klux Klan office. He had a vision of the life he wanted to lead. Maybe it was because of all those records his mother brought home from work, but he fell in love with music. He took up the trumpet. He loved sound. He built crystal set radios, made them out of doorbell wire, broken old telephones, and ice cream cartons. He wanted to write symphonies, a mishmash of classical and folk music, high and low, the music of everyone. He didn't have the money to go to college, but music got him there, on invitation to Tuskegee to be the first trumpeter in their orchestra. In 1933, he snagged a ride on a freight train headed for Alabama. But he never finished college. He ran out of money and left. This time, he headed north. Now, about what point in your life did you switch from music to writing? Well, actually, I switched uh, 1937. I left college and came to New York in 36 uh, to earn money with which to go back. And uh, as I, as often happens, I found my plans changed. That's Ellison on the NBC radio program, Favorites of the Famous. In New York, he bounced around odd jobs. The Harlem YMCA, a psychoanalyst's office, factory work. Sometimes when he didn't have a job, he'd sleep in the park. It was the Great Depression, a hard time for everyone. 1936, the year Ellison moved to New York, was the year after FDR founded a massive new government agency known as the Works Progress Administration. It put people who'd lost their jobs to work building roads and parks and dams, and also writing literature. The WPA included something called the Federal Writers Project. It employed about 7,000 out-of-work writers. They wrote plays and poems and symphonies. They collected stories, oral histories, from Americans all over the country. Ellison started working for the Federal Writers Project in 1938. His job was to collect stories about black New Yorkers. The WPA paid around 25 bucks a week. It saved his life. All those Negroes who had been hopefully taking courses in business and so on went right into, into, into the WPA and they found a place in society. So uh, uh, it was a, a moment of optimism for us. But, uh, for instance, I became a writer because I could, could uh, work for the WPA, do research, and learn to practice my craft. The WPA was the great patron of 20th century American literature. Saul Bellow, Zora Neale Hurston, John Cheever, Richard Wright, all of them worked for the WPA, which also often equipped them with cameras and tape recorders, big, heavy machines, to make a record of American culture. The WPA was gathering a whole new body of evidence about the nation's past and its people. The evidence of history. The evidence of story. It would really seem that uh, we have finally grown up as a nation, but we can spend a day recording such folklore as we have heard today. And this is only a beginning. Only a beginning. Voices that can be heard, reels that can be unspooled. Here in the last archive. 
Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Last spring, my friend Stephanie and I had a chance to travel to Rome as part of her research trip. And as usual when I travel, we stayed at an amazing Airbnb. Our Airbnb even had a balcony that overlooked the Colosseum. It was the perfect spot to check out the sights and just relax. But what was happening to my house while I was away? Did you know that while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb? You could just host a spare extra room, or you could Airbnb your whole home while you're away to earn some extra money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
In the 1930s in Harlem, Ralph Ellison collected amazing oral histories. No one's ever found tape of those interviews, though. But a lot of recordings from the WPA's work do survive. They're scratchy and garbly, but they're fascinating. Like this one from Texas, made with a machine that weighed 130 pounds. It's a little difficult to decipher, so listen hard. up the you ask you want to ask about the slave, you know, back, and I can't remember. That's a woman named Harriet Smith talking to a man named John Henry Falk in her house in Texas. Falk was a white man collecting oral histories for the government. And Smith, she'd been born into slavery. It's hard to understand this tape, but she's just told him to ask her whatever he wants. Well, ain't that about how old are you? Well, I don't know, Miss Russell. You don't know my age on the by the, the children telling me. My mom died, and she, and she didn't know much about our age. But the children traced back from that explained up to now. Well, uh, how old were you when you were? Well, I was about... 13 years old at the bridge. Can you I, remember slavery days very well? Of course, I remember all our white folks and all the names of them, all the children. Call every one of the children's names. Who, who did you belong to? Jim Bunny, the baby boy. Harriet Smith belonged to the baby boy. She'd been 13 at the breakup, the Civil War. The WPA had been trying to capture a vanishing archive, the stories of people like Harriet Smith. Four million Americans had been held in slavery before emancipation, and by the 1930s, the last of them were dying. And when they were gone, the evidence of slavery from the memory of people who endured it would disappear forever. The WPA set out to capture those memories. At first, The state offices of the Federal Writers Project oversaw the work. Then the Library of Congress took over. Interviewers would send transcripts of their interviews, more than 2,000 of them, to Washington. These life histories, taken down as far as possible in the narrator's words, constitute an invaluable body of unconscious evidence. Eventually, these interviews were published in a collection whose value is hard to describe. But the editor of the project once did a pretty good job of it. For the first time and the last time, a large number of surviving slaves, many of whom have since died, have been permitted to tell their own story in their own way. Interviewers who collected these oral histories were supposed to send tape recordings to Washington, those reels as big as tricycle wheels in tin cases. Sometimes they recorded with phonographs. The historical record, in some cases, was an actual record record. How many, how, many, how many slaves did he have? Well, he had my grandma and, uh, and my mom. My mom was the cook. And grandma, you know, and then they worked in the field and everything. I remember when she used to fly oxen. I fly, I fly oxen myself. Is that right? I can fly right off a cornrow as good as any man. Is that right? Oh, okay. As a historian, when I listen to Harriet Smith telling John Henry Falk about her life, my first thought is, it's amazing that all this is now in the Library of Congress. Because in the historical record, words spoken by black people are rare. Partly that's because in the era of slavery, enslaved people couldn't ordinarily give testimony in court. 
unless it was to testify against other slaves in cases of conspiracy, when they could give a special kind of testimony called Negro evidence, but only after swearing a terrifying oath. You are brought hither as a witness and by the direction of the law. I am to tell you, before you give your evidence, that you must tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and that if it be found hereafter that you tell a lie and give false testimony in this matter, you must, for so doing, have both your ears nailed to the pillory and cut off and receive 39 lashes on your bare back well laid on at the common whipping post. The most notorious use of Negro evidence in early America was a set of trials held in New York in 1741, when hundreds of men, black men, were accused of conspiring to burn down the city. I got really fascinated by this story years ago. I wrote a very long book about it. It's called New York Burning. Ralph Ellison in the 1930s, when he was working for the WPA, he got fascinated by this story too. He tracked it down. He found out all about Negro evidence. During those trials in 1741, a New York judge complained that it was impossible to take Negro evidence seriously. Many of them have a great deal of craft. Their unintelligible jargon stands them in great stead to conceal their meaning. The law of Negro evidence lasted a long time. Nearly a century later, when Frederick Douglass was growing up in Maryland and some white men beat him up, an assault witnessed by dozens of slaves, Douglas's owner tried to get a magistrate to press charges. But the magistrate said he couldn't do anything unless there'd been a white witness. Douglas later wrote about this in his autobiography. If I had been killed in the presence of a thousand colored people, their testimony combined would have been insufficient to have arrested one of the murderers. And over a century after that, in 1941, John Henry Falk asked Harriet Smith, to serve as an eyewitness to her own life. That's your slavery. Been saved time. Been saved time. What would the preacher preach about that day? I don't know. I didn't go. Recordings like these, they seem, at first, to upend centuries of evidentiary injustice. But then, listening to this rasping record, you start to have questions. What really is going on here? Well, did the white folks treat you good? Did you? I was good to us. Really? It isn't just her. In a bunch of these recordings, people interviewed say basically the same thing. Hey, slavery wasn't that bad. But that testimony contradicts just about every other possible type of evidence that survives. There are a few explanations for this discrepancy. Most of the people interviewed for this project were in their 80s. They were children before slavery ended. Maybe they'd been spared the worst of its miseries. But there was something else going on, too. A couple of years back, the writer Debbie Nathan went sleuthing and figured out that John Henry Falk and Harriet Smith were neighbors. Falk's family lived only four blocks from Smith's. She'd known him since he was a baby. On the recordings, he calls her Aunt Harriet. She calls him Mr. Falk. He was in his 20s. She was in her 80s. Falk, like Ellison, was interested in sound. Later, he became a successful radio broadcaster. He was also a prominent liberal. 
He joined the NAACP and fought for civil rights. He was a famous storyteller. He used to tell a Christmas story that NPR broadcast every year. He's not the bad guy here, but he's not an innocent bystander either. Debbie Nathan went through Fox Files at UT Austin's Briscoe Center. One day, she noticed an MP3 marked Harriet Smith. Somehow, John Falk had forgotten to submit that one recording to the Library of Congress. Well, did any of your folks ever get sold? Any of your friends have bought and been sold? No, no, they never did get sold. Mm-hmm. Some folks are awful good to the slaves. Yes, I like this. Now, Mr. Heath wasn't a cop. Did you hear it? He asked her. Some folks were awful good to their slaves. Weren't they? Of course, that's what's known as a leading question. This wasn't just a personal dynamic between Harriet Smith and John Falk, though, between Aunt Harriet and Mr. Falk. The problems with these interviews were often a lot worse. Some of the people asking the questions were actually descended from the owners of the people they were interviewing. Use your historical imagination. Sit on that porch. Harriet Smith wasn't going to give John Henry Falk real answers to his questions about slavery. He was a white man in Texas in 1941, lynching Texas. She told him some things. She didn't tell him everything. Mainly, she told him what she thought he wanted to hear. But Ralph Ellison, back in New York... He wasn't John Henry Falk. He was a black man interviewing black people, a lot of whom had only lately come north from the Jim Crow South. They were part of something called the Great Migration, when millions of African Americans left the South. Ellison was part of that migration, too. Black people who left the South went most often to cities, especially Chicago, Detroit, New York, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, Isabel Wilkerson, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, wrote about the Great Migration in a book called The Warmth of Other Suns. Her book is beautiful, and the way she put it together is incredible. She became a one-woman WPA. She began working on the book in the 1990s, when she realized that those people who'd made the Great Migration, they weren't going to be around for much longer. So she began interviewing them, as many as she could. You know, just the the passage of time, and then I was really running it, racing mm. against the clock. You talked to like a thousand people or so a lot, like when you were first doing, you know, just finding people, hundreds and hundreds of people. I did. I I, I can never say that I'm going to take the easy route towards something. And <laughs> you know, this was a, a case in point. I went to senior citizens centers. I went to AARP meetings. I went to pensioners reunions and meetings that they have, the postal workers and the, you know, the CTA bus drivers. I mean, all of those. How conscious were you of the legacy of the, you know, the Federal Writers Project or the WPA work of tracking down people who lived under slavery before they all passed on in the 1930s? No, I absolutely felt that I was uh, in a position to get uh, testimony, you might say, from the surviving people of an entire era that was passing mm-hmm. away with each mm-hmm. one of them going. It was like a mission I was mm-hmm. on, and I mm-hmm. was I was determined and felt 
that this was the last chance to get to hear from some of the people. Yeah, who and those were those stories just hadn't been written down. They hadn't been recorded at all, really. No. Wilkerson structured her book like a novel, writing together the stories of three lives. She'd started interviewing more than 1,200 people, and then she narrowed them down to three. One of these three people was Ida Mae Brandon. She'd been born in Mississippi in 1913 and grew up picking cotton and hating it. When she was about six, two white boys grabbed her and held her by her ankles over a well, just to watch her squirm. She went to school only till eighth grade. You couldn't go any higher. When she was 13, two black boys she knew talked back to some white lady, and they were lynched. And so in 1937, after some men with guns came to their house in the middle of the night looking for someone who stole some turkeys, Ida Mae and her husband, a man named Gladney, packed up everything. They went first to Milwaukee. They ended up in Chicago. Ida Mae Brandon Gladney was 83 when she spoke with Isabel Wilkerson. There's a moment in the book when she's sitting in a chair, gazing out a window, and she says, The half ain't been told. Ralph Ellison, he was born the same year as Ida Mae, and I think he must have felt that same way too. For all the things we think we know, there are all these people whose voices are silenced, whose half hasn't been told. If that's true, how much do we know, really? Ellison looked for people to interview the same way Wilkerson did. He went to street corners and bars and apartment buildings. He knocked on doors. One day in 1938, on the corner of 135th Street and Lenox Avenue, he met a man named Leo Gurley, who came to New York from South Carolina. I hope to God to kill me if this ain't the truth. All you got to do is go down Florence, South Carolina, and ask most anybody you meet, and they'll tell you it's the truth. Gurley told Ellison a story about a man named Sweet that he'd known back home. His name was Sweet the Monkey. I don't forget his real name. I can't remember, but that was what everybody called him. He wasn't no big guy. He was just bad. My mother and grandmother used to say he was wicked. He was bad, all right. He was one sucker who didn't give a damn about these crackers. Fact is, they got so they stayed out his way. <laughs> I can't ever remember him telling them crackers balling that guy. He used to give him trouble all over the place, and all they could do about it was to give the rest of us hell. Gurley must have told Ellison a lot of stories. This one particular story about Sweet, though, is the one that Ellison wrote down, the one that's in the Library of Congress. It was this way. Sweet could make himself invisible. You, you don't believe me? Well, here's how we done it. Sweet the monkey cut open a black cat and took out his heart. The white folks started trying to catch Sweet. Well, <laughs> they didn't have no luck. Police would come up and say, come on, Sweet. And he'd say, y'all want me? And they put the handcuffs on him and start leading him away. He'd go with a little piece, show like he was going. Then all of a sudden, he would turn himself invisible and disappear. <laughs> the police wouldn't have nothing but the handcuffs. <laughs> they couldn't do a thing with that sweet the monkey. Evidence like this, a folktale that gets written down, that's rare as hen's teeth. And what stuck with Ellison most in Gurley's tall tale, Sweet could turn himself invisible. 
once they found a place he looted with footprints leading away from it, and they decided to try and travel. This was about sunup, and they followed his footprints all that day. They followed him till sundown when he come partly visible. It was red, and the sun was shining on the trees, and they waited till they saw his shadow. That was the last of the sweet the monkey. I like to think it was Sweet who came back to Ellison a few years later, up in Vermont, in that barn. The sun shining, voice rising, like the voices that echo along the narrow corridors of the mind. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisions History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to The Tipping Point, and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off, but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards that's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards i'll save you a seat last spring my friend stephanie and i had a chance to travel to rome as part of her research trip 
and as usual when I travel, we stayed at an amazing Airbnb. Our Airbnb even had a balcony that overlooked the Colosseum. It was the perfect spot to check out the sights and just relax. But what was happening to my house while I was away? Did you know that while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb? You could just host a spare extra room, or you could Airbnb your whole home while you're away to earn some extra money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When Invisible Man was published in 1952, Ralph Ellison became a celebrity. Here he is again on the show, Favorites of the Famous. And may I add my congratulations on the National Book Award. It's quite an honor for the first novel, isn't it? Yes, it's uh, quite an honor and quite a frightening thing to happen to you. You know, you keep wondering, well, now, just what went wrong? Everyone wanted a piece of Ellison. Photographer Gordon Parks collaborated with Ellison on a series of photographs for Life magazine, depicting the most important moments in the book. The photos are haunting, surreal, black and white, and shot wide. In the most famous picture, a black man emerges from a manhole. You can see the blur of the street in the background. Only the top of his head is in focus. So remember Diana and Grace Bates, who was little girls threw oranges at Ellison while he was writing? Or maybe they were rocks. Anyway, they knew that guy in these photographs. Yeah, that's our dad. Daddy would have been friends with, with Ellison and Gordon Parks. They would have all known each other. So when they were doing this photo shoot, hmm. I mean, he was a natural model for that. You know, his, his, his handsomeness. Yeah, I'm just amazed that this image has become so iconic. You know, mm-hmm. it's all over. It hung outside uh, the MoMA in New York City for a season. <laughs> a huge poster oh, of, wow. of our father. Wow. Yeah, it brings me great delight to, to see that. Ellison, meanwhile, was everywhere. Interviews in the Paris Review, lectures and visiting professorships, cocktail parties, chit-chat with the president. He became much more than a literary celebrity. It was as if he were the great seer of the Black experience. It was as if he were a radio playing the voice of every Black person in the country, as if he alone were Negro evidence. If you listen for it, you can hear it, his self-consciousness about being asked to speak for the Negro. Mr. Ellison, how do you feel about being interviewed? Well, naturally, you, you feel uh, quite mixed about it. Later on, Ellison was called to testify before the Senate on the subject of social conditions in Harlem. But really, he was asked to explain what black people thought of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Uh, how did the Northern Negro or the Negro in Harlem regard these laws? Well, it, I, I will speak for one of them myself. The senators kept pressing him, asking him questions about Harlem, but also asking him in a way, how can a black man talk like that? Where'd you get your voice? You're so articulate. How did you get to be you? Uh, What was uh, life like for you as a boy growing up in uh, Oklahoma City? Well, it was the life of, of the average poor family. Ellison was most often in demand when things were worse for black people. Robert Penn Warren allegedly said Ellison was every white man's favorite black man. But he wasn't every black man's favorite black man. 
Ellison's biographer once told a story of a man who went to the library of a black studies program and asked for a copy of Invisible Man, only to be told they didn't have one, because Ellison wasn't a black writer. He kept trying to write another novel. It was always close, just around the corner, but he never finished it. He explained it a few ways. He lost some of it in a fire, or history moved too fast for him to comment on it. But I think he was also daunted. Daunted by having become evidence. At one point during his congressional testimony, a senator asked him about his upbringing. Um, my mother uh, had some sense of, of the values of excellence, and she used to say that she didn't care what I became as long as I tried to become one of the best. He'd been the best. Maybe he came to the end of his imagination. What could he possibly do next? People started talking about him as if he were a failure. He kept trying to write that novel. He'd read passages into a tape recorder and then listen back to them. They cut out our tongues. They left us speechless. They cut out our tongues. Lord, they left us without words. Amen. He died in 1994, author of a slew of brilliant essays, one published novel, and more than 2,000 unpublished pages of another one. So far as I know, he never went back to that barn in Waitsfield, Vermont. I, I, I do know this, that one of the obligations of being an American, it seems to me, is that you get to know other Americans. And uh, one of the uh, necessities is that we should not be afraid of others. Ralph Ellison and the WPA opened a door, a door to an entire archive. But somehow that door keeps slamming shut and getting locked again. And still, people keep trying to pry it open and record the evidence. In 2013, a century after Ralph Ellison was born in Oklahoma, George Zimmerman was acquitted for the shooting death of Trayvon Martin, and Black Lives Matter began. It's the next chapter in the long history of Negro evidence. Black Lives Matter is about justice, but it's also profoundly about evidence, the capturing of video and sound, recording showing what to whites had been unseen, hearing what had been unheard, knowing what had been unknown. Body cam, dash cam, iPhone, Periscope, Facebook Live. Record, play, listen. More voices means more disagreement, and that can make it harder to know what's true. But that's okay because hard has to be okay. At the end of Invisible Man, the Invisible Man is hiding out in a basement, siphoning electricity, listening to Louis Armstrong records, talking about what he knows, straight to the reader, unseen, but heard. I love the book's last line. So we thought it was only right to ask the Bates sisters to read it out loud. Who knows but that, on the lower frequencies, I speak for you. Some truths still can't be spoken. Some frequencies haven't yet been heard. But you can still set them down for the record. You listen, you record, and you write. Because the half still hasn't yet been told. The Last Archive is produced by Sophie Crane McKibben and Ben Nadefhafri, Our editor is Julia Barton, and our executive producer is Mia Lobel. 
Jason Gambrell and Martin Gonzalez are our engineers. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines. Original music by Matthias Bossi and John Evans of Stellwagen Symphonette. Many of our sound effects are from Harry Jeanette Jr. and the Star Jeanette Foundation. Our foolproof players are Barlow Adamson, Daniel Berger-Jones, Jesse Hinson, John Kuntz, Becca A. Lewis, and Maurice Emanuel Parent. The Lost Archive is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Special thanks to Ryan McKittrick in the American Repertory Theater, Andy Lancet at the WNYC Archives, the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress, Alex Allenson at the Bridge Sound and Stage, and Simon Leake. At Pushkin, thanks to Heather Fain, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Emily Rustic, Maggie Taylor, and Jacob Weisberg. Our research assistants are Michelle Gao, Olivia Oldham, Henrietta Riley, Oliver Riskin-Kutz, and Emily Spector. I'm Jill Lepore. Hey, it's Ben. Did you know you can listen to The Last Archive on Amazon Music? And you can stream your favorite albums and artists in the app, so you can do all of your listening in one place. Plus, Amazon Prime members get access to ad-free podcasts from other podcast networks like Wondery and Amazon-exclusive shows. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app or just ask your Alexa device to play The Last Archive on Amazon Music.